Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Fair Game. Hello, Mikey. Hi, Lily. It's <laughs> lovely to see you again or hear you. And to We're, you, sir. Uh, I'm so excited today because we have a special guest from my home country. Yes. Uh, he is an award-winning journalist and a current affairs reporter for the ABC and the author of a pretty incredible book titled Fair Game, The Incredible <laughs> Untold Story of Scientology in Australia, which seems very appropriate for this podcast. Correct. Welcome from sunny Sydney. Hi, Steve Canan. Hi, Mike. Hi, Leah. Great to be here. <laughs> Mike, his accent is so much better than yours. His, I know. It is know. a true Australian accent as opposed to your Aussie Mongrel. English Florida type <laughs> accent. Mine, mine, mine is a mongrel accent. Is it? Uh, like a pu purebred mongrel, though. What does that but mean? But if I go to Australia, they call me a yank. Oh, Okay. So you don't. So you. So to and for their, uh, from their perspective, you've lost it completely. Completely, one hundred percent. But I love your accent, Mike. I'm just busting balls. Okay, welcome, Steve. Thank you so very much. My pleasure, Lee. Great to be on your podcast, which I've been listening to and, and loving. Oh, thank you so much. We appreciate all the support that we can get. You know, Steve, I obviously have read your book and <laughs> have dealt with you over the years, and I know your story fairly well, but I'd love it if you would just start at the very beginning. How did you get involved at all with Scientology as a journalist in Australia? So it was 2010. I was uh, working on a program on ABC TV called Late Line. Uh, I was looking for a story, and I really knew nothing about Scientology. And a colleague of mine, Quentin McDermott, had done a big uh, expose on a program here called Four Corners called The X-Files that you can watch online if you want to. Very good story about Scientology. Um, and he had a couple of leads that he couldn't follow up on for that program, and he generously passed them on to me. And so those two stories ended up being on the program Late Line. One was about Scarlett Hanna, who was the daughter of the president of the Church of Scientology in Australia. And she grew up in the Cadet Org, the Children's Sea Org, and she described what a toxic environment that was like, how she was separated from her family. And in her words, she described how they were treated like cattle. Now, the second story I did was about a woman called Carmen Rayner, who, as an 11-year-old child, had been sexually abused by her Scientologist stepfather. Mm -hmm. And she told me that she'd been coached to lie to police and community services about that abuse mm -hmm. and that she'd been coached by a woman you know called Jan Eastgate, who uh, was the international, became the international head of Scientology's anti-psychiatry front group, the CCHR. Now, I should point out that Jan Eastgate denies those allegations, but sure. <laughs> I did those two stories. <laughs> yes. And I did those two stories, and I was amazed at the blowback. Uh, they threatened to sue me. They threatened to injunct the program. They even at one point claimed I breached their copyright because I used one of Scarlett Hanna's dad's photographs. They wrote to... <laughs> they wrote to the managing director of the ABC, um, they accused me of fraternising with cyber terrorist groups. And what they meant by that was that I'd interviewed somebody from Anonymous outside of protest outside the Church of Scientology. Right. They put complaints in about me. And you know what I thought? I thought, wow, you guys have got a lot to hide. If you're coming after me like this, I'm going to keep looking into you because 
you've got something to hide and I want to find out what that is. And I want to ask you because um, you are a journalist. You've done many stories. Have you ever received such a reaction from an organization calling itself a church? Uh, I've never had a reaction like that from anybody. It was like a full frontal assault on every level. Right. And I'm not saying it was intimidating, but it was just so over the top. Um, and so, no, I haven't. Not Certainly not from a religious organisation. And I tell you what, if you do a story exposing, for example, child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. there will be admissions of wrongdoing. Sure. When you do a story about the Church of Scientology, they never admit to anything. Never. Uh, that they've done wrong. They never no. do. I mean, uh-huh. if, if, you, if, if a journalist interviewed somebody from the Church of Scientology... The question you should ask them is, have you done anything wrong ever? And they will never <laughs> they will never point anything out. Right. They will never point anything out because right. they refuse to tell the truth about what's gone on and they refuse to do anything that they could, would believe would give them bad public relations. And the, and the, so and the it, reason for that, to, for, for people at home, the reason for that is because Scientology is – written down and everybody looks to a book and and what does L. Ron Hubbard say? What does L. Ron Hubbard say? Scientology parents, that's how they raise their children. What does Scientology say? What does L. Ron Hubbard say? Uh, the, the, L. Ron Hubbard says never, never admit to anything. And if someone is attacking you and, and their definition of attack is doing a story on Scientology, going to the police, uh, telling the truth about Scientology, this is considered a, an attack. Doing a welfare check on a family member, that's considered an attack. Telling your own story, considered an attack. Um, they don't know any other way. That is what Scientology says to do, which is never defend, always attack. And so they're just following the teachings of L. Ron Hubbard. And that's Sea Org members, that's Scientology PR machine, that's the OSA, that's a celebrity Scientologist. And Leah, the best insight I got into that was when I was doing those first stories, somebody yeah. suggested I read the introductory, Introduction to Scientology Ethics. And I went through its internal justice system, which was high crimes, crimes, misdemeanors right. and errors. Right. And that pretty much told me everything I knew needed to know about <laughs> Scientology because right. in high crimes, mm-hmm. the worst crimes in Scientology most of them relate to public relations about mm-hmm. testifying before a public commission, mm-hmm. speaking out about Scientology. Mm-hmm. There's also some in there about issues around copyright. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but if you look at when I was doing this story on uh, a young woman who, a, a girl, sorry, mm-hmm. an 11 year old girl who'd been sexually abused and that being covered up, well, the closest thing I could see that in Scientology's. Um, internal justice system was something they described, it's not a term I would use, seducing a minor. Mm-hmm. Now, seducing a minor is statutory rape. Okay. Um, that, that is only a crime in Scientology's internal justice system. <laughs> that's, that's at the same level as heckling a Scientology lecturer. Sure. But in, in Scientology's internal justice system, speaking out about Scientology, that's worse than that. Right. Right. And, and by the way, when we're talking about crimes and misdemeanors and all these things, these are internal. These are internal. It's not that they report to the police. That's not what we're talking about. I want, I want to make sure that everybody understands that. That seducing yeah, a minor, seducing a minor sounds like a crime, but, and it is, right? But not in Scientology. In Scientology, it is 
considered a crime on paper. However, they not enough to report to the police. That that is a high crime in Scientology, by the way, to report anyone to the police, a Scientologist. And they figure and they they think, as we all believed, that whatever is wrong with the child molester or pedophile in Scientology will be fixed in Scientology. It will not be fixed with WOG, as they call it, a, a derogatory term for a Scientolo non-Scientologist, with WOG law. And so they think they're above WOG law. So I, I don't want anybody to be under the impression. <laughs> and, and Leah, one other yeah. point on that, yeah. and that yeah. story involving Carmen yeah. Rayner, as yeah. an 11-year-old girl, she was told the reason she'd been abused as a child because she must have been bad in a previous life. Correct. That she pulled it in from a yeah. previous life. Yes. So it was her fault, not totally. the perpetrator's fault. They're, they're blaming an 11-year-old girl for child sexual abuse. And uh, uh, like you you did this story in 2010, right? I mean, the policies still exist and Scientology is still existing and Scientology is still hiding up these crimes. And when I say hiding up, I mean they believe that – uh, what they're doing is fixing the world. They believe they're saving mankind. So I'm not, I, I don't want to imply that only for legal purposes that they believe that they're doing that, right, Mike? They don't believe that they're hiding a crime. They believe that they're doing they better. Are, they're, they're doing right. better than the justice system could do. They are doing a, a more efficient, more humane, more compassionate approach yes. to dealing with the problems of of uh, activities of people than anybody else can do and anybody else could ever do right and, it's, and so that, yeah it's it's so fascinating to hear Steve talk about right. these examples because we've heard exactly the same thing over and, and over, over again and yep. over and people start to go well, you guys just keep hopping on the same old stuff over and over and over. Well, that's because it keeps going on. It doesn't change. It's and because the same of, thing and you're right, Mike. Today. And and the and and but what is um, purposeful is what Steve mentioned. Is Scientologists believe and they justify the lying to the authorities about these crimes that are taking place because they 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 believe lying about it will be the only hope for that rapist abuser or pedophile right they that justifies the lying that justifies protecting scientology and yes of, of course and the one other thing that goes along yeah. with this that steve's familiar with is and we must eradicate the bad evil Merchants of Chaos, the psychiatrists or whatever from the face of planet Earth because those people are bent on everybody's destruction. So there's no, there's no holds barred, no uh, rules of engagement, nothing. When it comes yeah. to a journalist exposing Scientology, they yeah. are literally fair game. Yeah. When it comes to... Anybody who is speaking out, they are literally fair game. Right. And, you know, Steve talking about what happened to him just after one story is the, here is the playbook that Scientology has of this is what you do with a journalist. Right. It's, it's incredible. And, the, and then I remember you telling me, 
back then or in your book, Steve, that Virginia Stewart, another one of my old friends and a spokesperson for Scientology in Sydney, had come out and made a big to-do about there's no such thing as disconnection. Wow. Yeah, yeah. She and she talked. I, I think I asked her a question, or I made a point about uh, the Church of Scientology routinely separating children from their parents, and she said, "Oh no, that that doesn't go on." And then I got an email from her father, <laughs> who said, "Hang on a second. Yeah, I haven't spoken to her for about twenty years." Right. And I was just, and he was living in Switzerland at the time, and we were getting a camera crew over there to to interview him. Yeah. And then suddenly they must have found out that that was going on. And so Virginia contacted her father <laughs> and he said, sorry, I've got to call this interview off because suddenly I've got contact with my daughter, the daughter that I love, right. um, and I don't want to jeopardise that. So the Church of Scientology, once again, this is about public relations, mm-hmm. allowed a public spokesperson who was obviously disconnected from her father to suddenly reconnect with her father because right. that would be good for public relations. Right. And I wondered right. that they stay connected. Um, well, un- unfortunately, he died soon after, so I wasn't sure yeah. how long that lasted. Right. But, yeah, it just goes to show you it all relates to the PR. And then what happened with the stories that you were doing? Whatever happened, well, were charges ever brought to bear? No, probably not because Scientology... Anybody who was witness to this would have just lied and been trained how to lie to the authorities or write false statements that this didn't happen. Well, in, in one instance with Jan Eastgate, there were charges laid, but they were later dropped. Uh, mm. And it was difficult for the Director of Public Prosecutions to get a prosecution, uh, I think because for a number of reasons that I can't really go into, but okay. those charges those charges were dropped uh, certainly other stories I did were mostly about abuse going on in the Rehabilitation Project Force in Sydney, where basically David Miscavige used Australia as a as what it was set up for, you know, 250 years ago, a penal colony. He was dumping uh, Scientologists in Sydney, in Western Sydney, in, in the RPF. Um, and so I did stories on that in particular relating to uh, a professional footballer called Chris Guider. Um, who ended up being uh, in the in the Sea Org and, and moving to the US? And Chris uh, talked about in that story about um, the violence of David Miscavige, um, and it was one of the first times I think that that was broadcast on TV. And I still remember that classic Scientology tactic of the stack of affidavits arriving, saying, yes. "No, this never happened. No, this never happened. No, this never happened." Right. And, and what I did was I rang the Church of Scientology. Uh, in the US. And I said, I want to talk to each of these people who've signed an affidavit because I want to test their claims. How do I know that this person actually signed the affidavit or if they did so, whether they did it under duress or not? And what do you think happened? They wouldn't put me through to them. Of course not. They would not, (laughs) they would not allow, they would not allow me to test those claims. So we, we we ran with the story and nothing ever happened. They didn't sue us or anything, or they just denied that David Miscavige would ever be involved in um, beating people up or asking for other people to beat people up. And then after that, you broke another story with Valeska Paris, who's uh, Chris Guider's wife. That's right. um, About her being imprisoned on the Free Winds, which is a Scientology ship, and uh, ultimately sent to a prison camp. 
in Sydney, right? And we're talking about the RPF. We should probably, Steve, probably better if you if you explain what the RPF is, because you know Mike and I are always explaining. But it, it's nice to hear somebody who wasn't a Scientologist. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay. Explain it in okay, layman's well, terms, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I would describe it as a punishment camp um, right. for people who step out of line mm-hmm. uh, and and they're denied rights. Um, uh, they can only eat certain things. Um, they have to labour. Um, it's a. I would say it's virtually a form of enslavement. I mean, they they refer to it as being some kind of rehabilitation. What's the term? It's a Re- rehabilitation yeah. project force, right? Yeah, and they say it's consensual and all the rest, yeah. but you know, people are locked up, and right. uh, it's abuse. It's physical and mental abuse. And um, I've spoken to people who've been in the RPF for over a decade and are completely traumatized by their experience. Um, and it's once again part of that punishment culture mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of snitching culture too within Scientology where somebody is constantly fearful that somebody will dob them in about something and they could be punished. Right. Uh, and so the anticipation of the punishment can sometimes be worse than the punishment itself because it stops people behaving rationally and standing up for people like you would want in any institution. You want okay. people, when they see abuse, abuse of power, just go, hang on, that's wrong. Yeah. But with, with a punishment culture like this, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen because that person gets punished. Well, most of Scientology, the teachings is that. So it, it is not like a separate thing. Most of Scientology is about punishment. Uh, the beginning courses of Scientology, the the carrot that I you know see it as these are little carrots because they're, you know, innocuous courses on communication and you know, integrity and basic basic things that everybody could agree to, right? So it seems as though it's it's innocuous and 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 uh, helpful, right? If you go from not being able to communicate with somebody and look in their eye when you're speaking or acknowledge people properly, right? So if you if you don't have those basics of life, you know, that is what lures you in. But then as you get like you you're talking about the ethics book, one of the uh, staples in Scientology is that ethics book. And, and um, you know, you, you learn pretty quickly that it's an us versus them, and them have no rights <coughs> in Scientology. And they have, you don't learn empathy. You don't learn those things that you're speaking of, Steve, of, of sticking up for anybody that isn't in Scientology. But there is no sticking up for. And it's, it, it literally is every man for himself. Yeah, it is survival of the the fittest in a sort of a very twisted fashion of the fittest being the one who can fit in best with the rules and regulations and what the the mores of the organization and the group are. And if you stick your head out and protest or do or say anything that is unacceptable, you are quickly brought back to earth with a big thud and the, you know, this is just part of the, that it it's, it's sort of distilled in the RPF, but the RPF is actually a distillation of all of Scientology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like a microcosm of all the bad bits all mm-hmm. jammed together in, in a very con- concentrated form 
and mm-hmm. you know stories of people that and what they've had to endure in the RPF are are horrifying yeah. and and numerous i mean is there's many of them in fact your book starts out with the story of one guy who escaped from the RPF um and i'd like you to just tell us a little bit about that steve well, yeah, sure. and before um, we get to that, I just want to say that Steve has interviewed over 200 Scientologists, and then you wrote a book called Fair Game, like Mike said, The Incredible Untold Story of Scientology in Australia, and that was published in 2016. So it's not even like, Steve, you did an inter- you know, you did some interviews back in 2010. I mean, you've really stayed with this. And I, and I find that with people who are so incensed by Scientology and what goes on and what has been going on, when you look at the history of this and fair game and all the crimes that Scientology has committed and covered up, I think people who get a hold of a story like this and like people like you, Steve, and it's not, it's not many, but there are a few of you out there who have continued to expose Scientology. There, there's you... There's Brian Seymour, there's uh, uh, Sweeney, uh, Tony Ortega, um, Alex Gibney, <laughs> Lawrence Wright. Like, you think about, the, I mean, on two hands probably I can count, right? But there's just some people that just keep going because it it is continuing to happen and it just hasn't stopped. And so, you know, Mike and I, and I know countless people who have been victims of Scientology, thank you for continuing to expose Scientology for what they're doing. Well, it is a hard issue to let go because you see yeah. the abuse of people and you know that it won't change because L. Ron Hubbard is considered the source and whatever he said at a certain point in history remains the same. It's yeah. an organisation that is unable to reform because of its origins. Right. And and so you're compelled to keep doing stories about them. I, I to a large degree have probably let go in the last few years because I feel like I've said most of what I wanted to say in that book. But at the same time, I'm always available to follow up another story if I think uh, it's worth doing. Scientology, to a large degree, uh, it just can't recruit in Australia anymore. And I believe there's a few factors in that. And one is that um, there's been so much negative publicity about Scientology. Well, I don't know negative publicity. You mean true uh, <laughs> yeah. about, I, don't, I don't know negative. Yeah, yeah I don't know. No, you're right. You're yeah. right. You're right. Yeah. You're so right. She, yeah, she corrects truth. me on that all the time, Steve. I you're right. Like when people call us like, critics or yeah, or atta- we're attackers no, no, of Scientology. The truth. It's yeah. the truth. <laughs> it's the truth. And what I, I really enjoyed listening to Richard Bihar in your previous um, yeah. podcast because he was a real trailblazer with that sure. article he wrote in Time Magazine in 1991. Yes. Yes. And what was different from then is that Scientology could use that tactic of suing time, scaring every other newspaper editor, every other TV uh, broadcast network about doing another story. But when the internet comes along and then suddenly you see all these stories and you have people publishing information uh, in the early days of the internet on on, um, what they called Usenet groups like alt.religion.scientology, you know, Scientology could no longer control that. And right. so if you're a, let's face it, there's two types of Scientologists. This is in my view. There's people who are born into it and there's people who are recruited into it and they're mostly cr- recruited between the ages of 18 to 25, mm-hmm. which is when the frontal lobes of your brain aren't fully developed. That's mm-hmm. the rational part of your brain. You are open to ideas. You're searching. Um, 
And also you want to change the world and Scientology in its own way offers that. And that age group is also the same age group, bear in mind, that ISIS recruits in, that you used to recruit First World War front frontline soldiers in. It's that kind of sure. age group where you take risks, where you're vulnerable, right. emotionally vulnerable as well. Now, 18 to 25s now, if if they're thinking about Scientology, they'll get online and they'll, they'll Google it and they'll yep. see every horror story. Uh, and as you point out, the truth. Yep. So I just think the internet has killed its business model and... Um, Yes, there are still people, but the numbers are diminishing. Um, and I think a lot of that has had to do with truthful stories getting out there by journalists. Um, right. and, and that helps. Yes. Steve, I, I'd like to chat just for a second about the first time we met because it was quite an experience. <laughs> <laughs> it sure was. I remember it well. <laughs> In fact, I wish I was recording it like it was for a podcast because it would have made a very entertaining podcast our day we spent together. Why? Yes, tell us, tell us. I don't know the story, so I want to hear it. <laughs> when I got a book contract, one of the first things I did was in 2012 go to the US. First stop, I went to New York, your hometown, Leah, and then I went to uh, Florida and I flew down to Tampa Airport and Mike picked me up at Tampa Airport and I flew down there specifically to go and meet Mike. And... I remember it well. In fact, I remember Mike picking me up at the airport and within five minutes um, we were basically communicating as Australian men do with each other. We were basically just taking the piss out of each other. Sure, sure. Uh, and, and having a good laugh. And Mike took me to a diner and we had, had a meal. And I remember telling him, I've got some information for you that I might, you might find interesting. And he said, oh, what's that? And I said, well, I know where they were spying on you. I know the house, the address, where the Church of Scientology put a private investigator in and took the photos that Mike knew well. There was a particular photo where he was talking to um, the two journalists from the St. Pete Times. Okay. I think was Marty there as well? Was Marty Rathbun yes. there in that conversation? It was, it, was, yeah. it was Marty Rathbun, me, Joe Childs, and Tom Tobin. Yeah. So I had the address of where they were spying on Mike. Because Mike and had left, was, Mike and Marty, both high-ranking executives in Scientology, had left Scientology and were speaking out. Yeah, right. yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I had the address, and I and and Mike was very excited about this, and he said, "Okay, let's go." Right. And you could, t- you could, you know, it's, I've spoken to Leah a number of former intelligence agents over the years, yeah. and they never lose their training. And I felt like right. Mike clicked back into the Office of Special Affairs, sure. and we were suddenly going there. <laughs> and he he pulled into the driveway. He didn't just park out the front in a very subtle sure. fashion. He went, you know, boldly pulled into the driveway straight up to the garage door. Yeah. And because what I'd been told was was that there were cameras placed under the awning above the door and an awning around the side. So we got out. Bear in mind, I'm in Australia. This is all to spy on Mike. All to spy on Mike. Diagonally opposite from his house. Yeah. And so we go up to this house and I said, okay, I was told there was a camera here and we look up and we see two bolt holes drilled in the awning. Right. So where a camera was attached. And I said, okay, I was told there was another one around the side. And we go there, same again, two bolt holes drilled into that awning. Wow. So what the intelligence that I've been given had been right. right. And what the story was that a woman who was mentioned on one of your previous uh, uh, podcasts called Heather McAdoo yeah. moved into that house specifically to not only spy on Mike and Chrissy, but basically infiltrate their lives sure. uh, to a degree 
that I think, Mike, that she ended up going to a baby shower for Christy. Is that right? Yeah, they yes. became friends. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And they moved somebody in, Leah, who was, the, of course, you know the story, that had a, a child the same age um, as Christy's child Christy. and yeah. Mike's child and and ingratiated themselves into the, those lives. And it didn't end there, of course, Leah. Mike yeah. then wanted to take me to the other house that she'd moved into when Mike and Christy moved to another part of Florida. Yeah. Um, and then we went there as well and checked out that place. And she and there's nothing there. you could do about this, right? You just kind of have to live with people's Scientology spying on you and infiltrating your lies. I mean, because people ask that, like, well, I would have destroyed the camera and I would have, you know, well, okay, that would be great for Scientology because then they could turn around and say, this lunatic destroyed my property. And this is well, where they spent. This is where they spend yeah, their money too. Their that tax-free tax money, exactly. To fair game people to move into houses, they buy houses. Everybody, it's not like, you know, this is what exactly right, Steve. Exactly right. This is all money, all this surveillance, all this wasted time, just to simply fair game a former senior executive of Scientology. And that's we were just talking and, about. And one just person. on the pack, yeah. just on the point of tax-free status as well. Yeah. We were talking before about how. There's no compassion. There's a culture of punishment. Sure. Um, that people who have something wrong with them are blamed for pulling it in from a previous life. Sure. Well, that means they don't believe in charity. And right. so, what is the basis of tax deductibility? Tax um, not paying taxes. So that you're a charitable. Yes. And that you're a charitable organisation. Yes. And so, how does a organisation that doesn't believe in charity that punishes people yeah. that actually says that if you're uh, unemployed or you're disabled? Um, or that you have learning difficulties or whatever, that it's your fault from a previous life. How do they get charity status? You are asking great questions. I think the IRS should answer that. I I think the IRS should ask Scientology that, but they're fully well aware of what Scientology isn't doing with their tax-exempt money. They just don't want to deal with it because they're the ones who granted it, and uh, they know what they did. They knew they weren't. Yeah, and they granted it only because they wanted the harassment to stop. So they rewarded the Church of Scientology for harassing them by giving yeah. them tax-free status. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Hey, exactly. see, Steve, you you know your stuff, man. Yeah, I'm really You're impressed. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I did immerse myself in it for a few years. It took me four years to write the book. Yeah, um, and I, I thought it was important to understand it, not just to hear people's stories, but to understand it and understand the motivations and to understand what Hubbard wrote and what he said and because everything goes back to him. I mean, Miscavige has taken it and turned it up to the nth degree yeah. uh, and increased the punishment. But a lot of people f- think that David Miscavige invented punishment in Scientology, but that's just not true. L. Ron Hubbard used to, uh, uh, on the Apollo, used to put small children into the chain locker as punishment, isolate them from their parents. Yep. Hubbard was in on the punishment too. Um, well, so, remember, you know, well, remember, it goes back to him. Of course. And and remember that uh, L. Ron Hubbard teaches and, and believes that children are not children, that they are spiritual, old spiritual beings in little bodies, and they've come back. So they, he believes that there's Seorg members and Scientologists that have come back to continue their mission of making the planet, 80% of the planet, Scientologists. So they don't, I mean, there's policies written about 
you know, uh, if you uh, tell the truth about Scientology and publicly speak out against uh, the abusive uh, practices of Scientology, you are considered an enemy, a suppressive person. That's what the label is. And L. Ron Hubbard says, hey, it doesn't matter if you're a child, as suppressive as a suppressive, and you treat them as such. And the same with punishment in Scientology. He believes that children are to be punished the same as adults because he believes that they are adults. And so all Scientologists believe that. And all Scientologists raise their children as old spiritual beings in a little body. So it's going to continue in that way because that's the teachings of Scientology. But let's move on, Mike, from there because you had all these bullet points. I want you to make sure you get to them. I just... yeah, go ahead. What's interesting is that uh, Steve and I had a uh, an interesting discussion about Scientology in Australia because obviously this is something that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Of course. Uh, my parents got involved in Scientology in Australia when Hubbard was first went there in the late 50s and then I was raised in the in the era of the Victorian governmental inquiry in Australia and mm-hmm. I was saying to Steve at the time Look, Australia has a huge part in the history of Scientology and the formulation of Hubbard's worldview. Yeah. He, it was the first country where Scientology was had a government investigation and was literally banned. The practice of Scientology was banned in the state of Victoria. Right. But then it was also the first country where the highest court in the land recognized Scientology as a religion. Right. And in fact, I'm, it may be still the only country where that is the case. It's right. also the first country where there was a, a bunch of journalists who pushed back on Scientology mm-hmm. and didn't put up with the with the fair gaming tactics. Right. There were a whole bunch of Scientologists who had a very prominent role in the history of Scientology, ranging from... Yvonne Gench, who founded Celebrity Center, and her daughters, mm-hmm. Terry and Janice, who were very important in the early years of the Sea Organization and were like Hubbard's right-hand assistants. And then there was the, you know, Rupert Murdoch and his involvement from my old hometown. And you Wait, know, what was his what was his involvement? Rupert Murdoch was uh, well, he started, as you know, News Corporation, which is now Fox. Uh-huh. And he started from Adelaide, Australia, with the the evening news in Adelaide. And okay. he was considered by Scientology and Hubbard to be one of the main suppressive persons on planet Earth. Why? Because he was a media baron. Uh-huh. And the media, all media, are the enemies of Scientology. Right. Every one of them. And so Hubbard had listed down, you know, Cecil King, Rupert Murdoch, a Mm. bunch of these media barons who were the suppressives who were trying to prevent Scientology from growing in the world. I see. And Rupert Murdoch figured very prominently in that list. And over the years, didn't have a lot of nice things to say about Scientology, and neither did his news organizations. There was also, you know, obviously James Packer, who came along later, who was, interestingly, the son of the other huge media baron in Australia, Kerry Packer, Mm. who was sort of 
It was Rupert Murdoch and Kerry Packer, the two big gorillas of Australian media. <laughs> and James Packer became best buddies with Tom Cruise. And of course, it was Nicole Kidman who was Australian and Julian Assange who did big WikiLeaks stuff on, on. So there was this, all of this Australian sort of, I don't know, influence or yeah. interaction and Hubbard had claimed to have been in Brisbane during the war and was a great war hero and all of these <laughs> things. And it sort of now Steve spent four years and sort of pull all this together into an incredible book about fair game and right. even traces the history of the guardian's office and a lot of the fair game tactics to what had happened in Australia. I see. Sorry, Steve, I'm ranting and ra I'm realize I'm rambling. This is your book. You should be talking. I'm like, <laughs> Oh, thank you, Mike. And, and, and Mike, and Mike, Mike, I've got to give you credit for pointing out these links to me early on, and that's really what motivated me to write this book and to try and pull these strands together. Um, you mentioned Hubbard being in, in 1942. He did serve briefly in Australia during the war. Hubbard took ages to try. He had a pretty inglorious war record, and he claimed at one point in the 1950s that he helped uh, save Australia from the Japanese during World War II. Uh, but if you look up... Um, his war record, that's a complete crock. He uh, spent less than two months uh, in Brisbane. He got sent home for insubordination. Oh. He, uh, when he got sent home, he owed money to a local menswear store. He owed a machine gun to the Australian military. Uh, he'd been sent home for insubordination. One of his superiors described him as garrulous. Um, and, of course, he mean? said, oh, well, you know, like full of himself. Oh. Um, <laughs> and he, he later claimed, well, there's... Two different versions of events. The Church of Scientology will say that he won anywhere between 21 and 27 war medals, including a oh, Purple, yeah. Heart, Purple which, Heart, yep. which is just ridiculous. It's just not true. He got four, four war medals, the ones you get just from serving, not from actually doing anything special. And Hubbard also came up with this extraordinary tale that he was machine gunned in the back by the Japanese in Java and that he then got into a dinghy and rode to Australia from Java. Now, I got the maps out and worked out that he would have done that. That's a, that's, um, a thousand miles or 1,600 kilometres for people who use the Australian system. Um, and he, so he was in a dinghy by himself rowing for 1,600 kilometres in, in the monsoon season uh -huh. uh, in shark-infested waters and somehow made it to Australia. So there you go. That's a, that's a classic Hubbard story that just does not stack up. It's not true. Sure. Um, and also, like... Lying about your war record is one of the lowest things you could ever do. Uh, sure. In the US, I think you call it being a valor thief, and there's now laws that you could prosecute. If Hubbard was alive today, you could prosecute him for being a, a valor thief, for lying about his war record and exaggerating his war record. Right. Um, the Rupert Murdoch stuff I found just fascinating because mm -hmm. in the 1960s, and Mike pointed out that he started off with a, a newspaper in Adelaide and then he bought a newspaper in Sydney called the Daily Mirror, and when he bought that newspaper, he got another tabloid muckraking paper called Truth, and it started crusading against Scientology, mostly as a consumer issue, mostly saying these people have been ripped off and they deserve to have their money back. Right, right. And at all times they referred to it as bunkermology. And this had a bit of a role in leading to the inquiry, the first public inquiry anywhere in the world into Scientology, right. which led to the ban in Victoria. And then the Scientologists wanted to get Murdoch. And I found evidence in my research that they'd conducted a spying operation 
against Rupert Murdoch where they hired a private investigator to get information on him, and this was in 1968. Now, I tracked down the private investigator, and Leah, his name, I swear, it's straight out of a Hollywood film. His name was Rex Beaver. And (laughs) (laughs) Rex Beaver, um, private eye, kept the best records I've ever seen of of anybody. And when I I finally got onto him, I rang everybody who had the name Beaver in Western Sydney uh, and left messages on their machines. And finally, one day I got this call from somebody who said, G'day, it's Rex Beaver here. And I said, oh, Rex, I am so, so glad to hear from you because I didn't even know if the guy was alive. Right, right. And I said, I'm ringing you about a job you did about 50 years ago. I don't know whether you remember it or not. He goes, oh, try me. I said, it's about the Church of Scientology. And there's this pause and he just goes, how could I forget it? Now, not only does Rex remember this particular job that he had, he kept incredible notes. He kept wow. his payslips. He kept his payslips from the Church of Scientology. Oh, so my God. The Scientologists, as they do, denied it. Oh, no, 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 no. We right. never spied on Rupert Murdoch. And it's right. like, oh, really? Well, I've got the payslips. And so Rex was hired to spy on Rupert Murdoch. They took him into the Church of Scientology in Sydney. All he did really was answer an ad in the newspaper saying private investigator wanted. And he went in there and they gave him a security check. So that means... They're asking him, you know, are you a communist? Are you a homosexual? Have you ever had ill intentions about L. Ron Hubbard? And he's just thinking, who are these weirdos? Right, right. So he then says, okay, I need the money, so I'll take the job. And so he starts gathering gathering information about Rupert Murdoch. But what he does is he goes and meets with Rupert Murdoch and says, hey, I've been hired by the Church of Scientology to spy on you. Do you want me to play double agent? Pretend that oh. I'm still spying on you, but actually spy on them and then help you get a story. And Rupert I Murdoch said, that sounds sensational. So, <laughs> so Rupert Murdoch then helps oh. Rex with a bit of intel, feeds it back to the Scientologists. And then a few weeks later, when Rupert's got enough on the Scientologists, uh, they splash on the front page of the Daily Mirror in Sydney about this spying operation. Now, the Scientologists never forgot that. And remember, you know, your your podcast is about fair game. Sure. If you go back to Hubbard in 1959 when he wrote the Manual of Justice, yeah. what was that line in there where he said, um, some people attack Scientology, I never forget, always even the score? Is that the uh-huh. right term, Mike? Exactly. You Lee? got it. You quoted it perfectly. Now, the, the, okay. can we just talk about that for one second? Manual of Justice is a uh, set of directives written for the Guardian's office, now called Office of Special Affairs, which is the Dirty Tricks uh, Department of Scientology. And you are talking about one of those policies in Scientology that is still used today. <laughs> Go ahead. Right. And actually, it even <laughs> yeah. predated the Guardian's office. Oh, really? It was really? in 1959. I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. And okay. it, it, was, it was for the yeah. people who worked directly for Hubbard in what he called at the time his personal office, the Hubbard Communications Office. Understood. Okay. So fast forward decades later, the yeah. Scientologists want to even the score. Sure. And Marty Rathbun, back when he was talking to journalists still, and he was very helpful to me in providing me with certain information. And he told me that he'd gone through the files of Scientology in California, the intelligence files, and Rupert Murdoch was up there with the head of pharmaceutical companies and and prominent psychiatrists as, you know, the most evil people, according to the of Scientologists. Yes. Because they believed that he helped create this inquiry in Victoria. 
that triggered the ban and everything else. And so Marty told me that David Miscavige, him and Tom Cruise had a conversation about how they could help recruit James Packer to the Church of Scientology. James Packer was very close friends with Lachlan Murdoch, son of Rupert Murdoch, and that if they could get James in and James could work on Lachlan and they could get Lachlan in, then the Church of Scientology in the term was could get get its claws into News Corp and seek revenge on Rupert Murdoch. Now, they got James Packer in um, and by all accounts, you know, well, Marty Rathbun told me that he felt it was quite, Scientology was quite helpful to James Packer at that stage in his life, but they certainly didn't get Lachlan Murdoch. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, you'll remember, tweeted about Katie Holmes and Tom Cruise and Uh, and everyone was going, why is Murdoch tweeting about them and about them being (laughs) evil and a creepy (laughs) cult, not knowing this history going back to the 1960s? Sure. But, But Lachlan Murdoch said, in a quote to the Daily Beast, you know, I tend to agree with my father on this, but I don't tweet about it. You know, oh. so they were never going to get Lachlan because he was very sceptical of the Church of Scientology as Rupert was. So you can see this, can't you? You can see this vengeful, we must not only attack, but we're going to get revenge on them 40 or 50 years ago for a slight back in the 1960s. That operation didn't work on, on Lachlan Murdoch, but hey, they tried it and it went straight to the top. It went right. straight to David Miscavige. Right. right. And, and Steve, something else that I found absolutely fascinating in your book was the fact that what started the Victorian government inquiry was L. Ron Hubbard's obstinate refusal to give one man his money back. Literally, right? right. That's right. There was a guy called Philip Wern, and he was so like L. Ron Hubbard, I can't begin to tell you. He himself was a scam artist. He himself had a, an appallingly disgraceful military record. He was even into science fiction. He was a cartoonist for a while, but he stole a whole lot of cartoons from a, an American cartoonist, published them in an Australian book and thought he would get away with it. But no, he was a plagiarist. Uh, he was just, he was the world's worst scam artist. And there's nothing more a scam artist hates than being ripped off by another scam artist. <laughs> and so and so when he... He started Scientology to make money because he thought someone sold it to him as a way he could make more money. Uh, But after he joined the Church of Scientology, his business went bankrupt. And he was suddenly working as an auditor in the Church of Scientology or was the Hassi. A Scientology counsellor. Yeah, he was working as a a Scientology counsellor in Melbourne, earning very little money. And he's going, hang on a second. He had an an epiphany. Since Since I started getting involved in Scientology, I lost all this money. My life is falling apart. What is going on here? And he's asked for a refund. And I, I got the letters. I've got the letters that you can look at in the in the book where he wrote to L. Ron Hubbard. They're in the Vic- they're in the Victorian um, archives, and it's yeah. this hilarious collision of two mad people. Um, it it reminds <laughs> reminds me of when you play when you play football. Each side has a mad person on their side, and they always find them find each other in the first five minutes of the game. They just they're drawn right, to each right. other in this magnetic force field. Sure. It was these two <laughs> mad people are drawn together and they're yeah. writing crazy letters except Wern has more insight about Scientology than most people ever have, the way he right. describes what a racket it is. And he asks for his money back. And one of Wern's offsiders says to Hubbard, just give him his money back. He's going to cause you problems. He's going to cause you problems. Hubbard only has one gear. He can only attack his right. his critics. He cannot... There's no nuance. There's no ability to compromise. So what? So Hubbard goes, no, 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 and he's writing these abusive, offensive letters back to Wern. So what does Wern do? 
He starts talking to politicians, writing letters to the medical establishment, and that all that triggers the Victorian inquiry, right. which tr- which goes for fifteen months, which leads to the ban in Victoria. And then, Leah, what's interesting is there's a journalist called Alex Mitchell. He's uh, still around. He's an Australian journalist. He's the only man I ever know who tried to interview L. Ron Hubbard at a urinal at a casino in <laughs> Corfu. <laughs> L. Ron Hubbard, while he was uh. taking a piss, refused to be interviewed. Oh. But <laughs> it gives you an insight into what an intrepid reporter Alex Mitchell is. Yeah. But anyway, Alex took the Victorian report. Yeah. When he moved to London and he handed it around to every reporter in Fleet Street in the in the British newspapers. That then started to pop up in reports about Scientology in the UK. Right. Then a British politician called Lord, Lord Balneal gets up in the parliament and starts speaking out about Scientology. What happens then? Hubbard, who's living in St. Hill Manor in the English countryside at this time, sets up what is called the Investigations Unit Mm -hmm. of Scientology, and they hire a private investigator to dig up dirt on Lord Balneal. Now, once again, it backfires because that investigator decides he doesn't like the Scientologists and goes to the press and exposes the story about... Uh, a private investigator, him being hired to spy on a British parliamentarian who's speaking out about Scientology. So what happens then? Hubbard goes, well, we're not going to hire private investigators anymore. We're going to set up the Guardian's office. So that's where the Guardian's office comes from. This this process going right back to the disgruntled customer that Hubbard should have given given his money back to, (laughs) triggering an inquiry that then feeds into the British press to Lord Balneal, who speaks out in Parliament, Hubbard can't handle it. He overreaches once again. And the history of Scientology is this history of overreaching by Hubbard and his followers. And it causes more problems than it's worth. And that leads to the Guardian's office, which leads to the stories that you've been covering on this podcast. Things like what happened to to Paulette Cooper. Correct. So at the time uh, you smoked, you were speaking to Marty, like, we were just saying Marty Rathbun was on the right side of this fight at one point until he uh, got a house and went back into Scientology. Now his job is attacking his friends. But um, in the book, which I hope people buy and read, you talk about wiretapping Nicole Kidman and uh, and that Marty Rathbun discovered the main upset had been what? Uh, what, what, what can you just explain this part, Mike? Because I don't, I don't hundred percent understand it. Maybe you want to. Let's let Steve explain it because Marty Rathbun spoke to you and he revealed information that nobody oh, yeah. else had gotten at that time about the breakup of Tom and Nicole, right? Yeah, and really, when I watched Going Clear, Alex Gibney's excellent documentary yeah. uh, about Scientology, he interviewed Marty Rathbun, and Marty gave bits of information away about. What happened where the Church of Scientology was involved in helping um, spy on Nicole Kidman during the breakup of her marriage with her and and Tom Cruise? Right. And I was really interested, and and, uh, according to that version of events, Tom said that he wanted uh, her calls recorded. Why? 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 Well, it's hard to know what was going on. Because he yeah, could, well, and and you know, I tell people that all the time. You know, I hate to listen because listen, I don't, I don't uh, talk about other actors in the business because listen, we can all be assholes, right? Like we all, you know, are yelling about like, "Where's my bagel?" I asked for a specific sesame. Okay, so I'm not talking about 
the assholes. The, you know, we're all entitled, narcissistic assholes in this business. But what people don't understand, the reason why I go on about Tom Cruise, A, I knew him personally. B, he was the reason I left Scientology. And so for that, I am grateful. However, I saw a side of Scientology and the power of Tom Cruise and what he does to Scientologists who work for him, who know him. And I had, it was the beginning of the end for me when I saw that, you know, I was a by the book Scientologist, right? And so if I saw that the technology of L. Ron Hubbard was being abused, I didn't care if you were Tom Cruise or this one or that one, I still applied the technology that I knew. And what I was under the assumption of was that there is nobody special in Scientology, but I saw that that did not apply to Tom Cruise because he was best friends with David Miscavige. Uh, A key part of the equation and and the relationship between Cruise and Miscavige is key here, but a key part of this story is, is that Nicole Kidman got Tom Cruise to drift from Scientology. He was missing for a few years, particularly right. when they were shooting Eyes Wide Shut in the UK. Sure. And Nicole Kidman, as you know, Leah, is a very smart, rational woman. Her father yes. was a psychologist. She was raised by a feminist mother, politically active. Uh, she's very switched on character. And, yes, she did do certain levels of Scientology, but I think she was exposed to the truth of it and she got out. Yeah. And she got she convinced Tom to get out and he yeah. was away. But what she didn't realize at the time but that was that Michael Dovin paid up Scientologist reporting directly to David Miscavige is working for Tom Cruise and reporting back everything that's going on in that house, going on right. in that relationship right. to, the, to the Church of Scientology. To David Miscavige. Exactly. To David Miscavige. Um, and Marty Rathman gave me details about this, about Dovin's role in spying on Tom and Nicole and feeding the information back to Miscavige. Sure. And so uh, while Nicole had got him to drift from Scientology, they've got this Scientology agent in their lives, and Nicole doesn't really know about this. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. What's happening is that Tom is getting further and further away from Scientology, which would have been a great thing for him, and it wouldn't be a great thing for him even today, so that he can have a relationship with his daughter, Suri. And that their adopted kids, uh, Connor and Bella, could have a relationship with their mom, Nicole. Um, So I think it would be a great thing. But here's what happens. Once somebody is labeled somebody who might be a potential trouble to David Miscavige and take away their star, which is Tom Cruise, right? They are now on an all-out attack against Nicole. So they, what, conspire to meaning David Miscavige, to get Tom away from Nicole. Yeah, they conspire to break up their relationship. And what did Dovin Marty tell you? Dovin helps, yeah. well, Dovin, Dovin helps get um, Tom back for auditing and then they start planting the seeds in his head about, you know, breaking up and all the rest of it. Right. And and then that's when Tom, according to this version of events, and Bert Fields, Tom's lawyer, denies it, that Tom wanted uh, Nicole spied on. Um, Calls recorded. Now, uh, Bert Fields worked with a legendary PI in the US called Anthony Pelicano, Uh who went to jail for tapping people's phones at the telephone exchange, I think it was. Um, And now Bert Fields denied that they used Pelicano. Uh, Marty Rathbun told me 
that he didn't want Pelicano involved, but the private investigator, well, that the phones were tapped. Right. And in going clear, he discloses this. But I'm I, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, so if it's true that Tom wants her phone tapped, what does he want to know about? So I asked Marty, was he worried about someone in particular? And I could just hear Marty drag on a cigarette. And he says, Russell Crowe. Mm. Russell Crowe's a really good friend of uh, Nicole Kidman's been so for years. Um, now, Marty told me that there was nothing untoward because he apparently had access to uh, the recordings. And, and uh, also had, had access to Nicole's, you know, confidential Scientology auditing. Yeah, he would yeah. have. He would have yeah. for sure. Yeah. So he said there was nothing untoward, but it, he, he said that that was a motivating factor, that Cruz wanted to know what Crow yeah. was saying to Nicole Kidman. And Marty told me that all Crow was doing, doing was being a good friend to sure. Nicole in a time of crisis. Sure. Uh, but, but it's just so all-pervasive. You can't get it. Even if you decide to leave Scientology and you get your partner to leave Scientology, they infiltrate your lives. They tap your phones. They have people working for you, spying on you and feeding information back to the, the head of Scientology. Right. Uh, it's just so insidious. Uh, I want to just add James Packard is still friends with Tom Davis, who used to be the former sp- spokesperson of Scientology. He's not in the Sea Org anymore, but he's still a Scientologist. And um, I think that I, this is just my opinion, Mike and, and Steve, but I believe that um, uh, Brian Seymour's uh, documentary that was about to come out, uh, his investigative report on Scientology and the fair gaming of Paul Haggis, uh, had a lot to do with the connection of Tom Cruise, being friends with Packard, being friends with Tom Davis. I think that had a lot to do with um, uh, that particular show not airing. That's just my opinion, but... Go ahead, Steve. Did you want to add anything? I was just going to say, this. well, Tommy Davis did work for James Packer, uh-huh. um, and James Packer has been close with Kerry Stokes, who's the head of the Seven Network, uh, who Brian works for. Uh-huh. Like, I don't know the ins and outs of that story, but... Well, neither do I. But, hey, why why do they suddenly kill a program after putting a promotional trailer out there and having it online? It, Not to mention, it was it was vetted in January. Like no one's yeah. airing a story on Scientology that's not legally vetted. Like yeah. nobody ever and in I, the history I, will ever do a show about Scientology that's not vetted legally. And to be at the eleventh hour pulling a show that was vetted in January, going to air in July, right, Mike? Yep. Not to mention that, that Brian has done dozens of stories over the years that have gone to air and he hasn't been sued. And the Church of Scientology hasn't sued for a very long time uh, in relation to media stories. I don't know what's going on, but it looks like there's been pressure. You know, Steve, I'm not sure if you actually realize, but that then the the subsequent events to Lord Balneal and the formation of the Guardian's office was the ban on Hubbard being able to enter Britain. And the formation right. of the Sea Organization, exactly. That and the, and of course the Sea Org, and the Sea Org is 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 described as this kind of Hubbard's discovery tour, uh, and him his research. But he's on the run. That's what right. he, he's on the run from the authorities. He has sure. to leave the UK because they're closing in on him, and they ban students coming in to to Britain and studying Scientology. And Hubbard is seeing the writing on the wall, and so he forms the Sea Org, and they hit the seas and. You know, he's on the run. 
just because I want to promote a few other things, because I really think people should read your book. There's some other fascinating stuff in there. You got Terry Gamboa to talk to you, and Terry has not <laughs> spoken to anybody. And she told you the story of her departure from the Sea Organization, and then the fact that that Dave LeBeau was sent in to spy on her and her sister, Janice, in Las Vegas and actually worked for and with them. Dave LeBeau, the private investigator who spent like three years tailing me, who tailed Marty Rathbun, mm. who, did, who started out after Terry and Janice, Bob Minton, and was on Bob Minton for years. Dave LeBeau was... Uh, and that story of Terry is an astonishing story because I don't know if you even know this, Leah. What? Terry, like, they not only had a house opposite me. Terry yeah. was such a threat to David Miscavige and the IRS tax exemption because of what she knew from her position. Yeah. She was lured to go live on a horse farm in Australia. Why? With to get her out of the country. I see. Literally, a, a, a guy was set up, a multimillionaire, fake multimillionaire, set up with a horse stud in Australia. And this is because Terry loves horses. Right. right. So she was lured to go on this incredible deal. We'll fly you home to Australia. You can live on this ranch. You'll be completely in control of it. It's all funded by this wealthy guy from Thailand or something. She was literally gotten out of the country. Right. She couldn't be sent. By the way, it's still (laughs) happening today. You know, uh, I'm aware of certain things that are going, I mean, this is very normal for Scientology. If, if you were named, as a, a person to of interest to talk to in any case in Scientology, all of a sudden that person is shipped off to another country where authorities cannot reach them. And this is continuing on today. Right. Um, the, diff- uh, the difference with Terry, yeah. though, was she wasn't under their control anymore. She had right. left. So they spent literally millions and millions of dollars establishing this elaborate scheme and scam for the sole purpose of getting Terry Gamboa out of the United States. Right. Like millions. And the reason why she was a threat was that was she was a trustee and she didn't even realize it at the time, mm. which made meant she had incredible power. Some people even argue that the three trustees had power to kick out Miscavige. And so her name was on key documents that the Church of Scientology at the time had given to the IRS in the US when when they're trying to get tax-free status. And she was out of Scientology. So if the IRS had done their job, looked her up and called her Mm -hmm. and found her, it could have derailed their whole program to get tax-free status. So that's why they moved her out of of the country and put her on a horse farm um, with this elaborate ruse that, you know, this millionaire guy had a proposal for them. Um, But talking to Terry was fantastic and... Uh, I just convincing her to talk was a big deal because she'd sure. never spoken to anybody. Right. And in fact, you remember the te- famous Ted Koppel interview with David Miscavige. Mike yes. knows it well because he went to the studio that day. Sure. As, um, a, as, a, as, a, as a Sea Org <laughs> member. Yep. Yep. Yes. <clears throat> so I never, I know, I don't think every, anyone knows this, but 
Ted Koppel rang Terry Gamboa after she got out and wanted her to go on to Nightline and debate David Miscavige during that TV appearance. Sure. But but she was Yeah, but she was not in the kind of state that she felt that she could do it. She got out of Scientology. She wanted a quiet life. She didn't want to, you know, set off that exploding device by going on and debating Miscavige. Um, But so she was very sceptical of talking to journalists. And I still remember I was at a a kind of anti-Scientology conference in Toronto. I flew into Las Vegas and I first of all met Janice at an all-you-can-eat buffet and a very (laughs) low-rent casino on the outskirts of Las Vegas. And I spoke to Janice, her sister, and then I said, Janice told me you can call Terry now on this number. And so Terry says to me, okay, I'm going to meet you on the third floor. I'm driving this certain type of car. Um, Make sure you're not tailed. So she picks me up on the third floor of this car park because, yeah, as Mike points out, Dave LeBeau had actually infiltrated their business. So, of course, mm-hmm. she has good reason to fear that sure. she's still being followed 30 of years course. later. <laughs> and so she then takes me to a cheesecake shop in an industrial part of Las Vegas and we sit down and we start talking. Yeah. And so she starts, she says, okay, I want to see some of what you've written. And so I show her a chapter yeah. where I talk about L. Ron Hubbard living in Tangier and taking a lot of drugs. Sure. And she's reading it and she's going, I didn't know about this. Oh, this is interesting. <laughs> yeah. And so then she can see that I've done my research. Sure. And so then she agrees to go on the record with me, yeah. which was very gutsy given the power that she held within that organization yes. and the potential mm-hmm. blowback that she could have copped. Sure. And she told me her incredible story. And it's amazing because she was one of Hubbard's original Commodore's messages on on the boat. She used to yeah. light his cigarettes, pull on his trousers, send sure. his messages out, do all and these kind of work. this was L. Ron and Hubbard's uh, in the early days of the Sea Org was on a ship called the Apollo, right, Mike? And Yep. Uh, and by the way, Janice wrote a book. We should mention that. She yeah. Called, two. Called the Com- two. Uh, two books. Okay, we should also put those up. I will. And so they were able to tell their Janice and, and Terry and also their brother Peter were able to tell their incredible escape stories of getting out yeah, uh, of the Sea Org and being tailed and followed. And he was working for their company called City Mortgage and uh, he was working as a private investigator. He was never closing any sales. Janice and Terry got a bit suspicious of the fact that he was never closing any sales. And there was someone working for the company, I think, who got drunk with him one day and Dave told him, oh, I'm not actually here as a mortgage broker. I moved to Las Vegas on an operation. I'm a private investigator. Idiot. And he took him back to his house and showed him all his private investigation equipment. Yeah. And so that guy then passed that on to Janice. Sure. And then they were able to explode, expose uh, LeBeau, who's made so much money out of spying oh, isn't on, he hasn't he retired and isn't he living on an island somewhere? I mean, isn't he? I mean, he, is there, if there's a definition yeah. of dirty money, I don't know what that it could well, be. Any and, and that goes for every that and that uh, and I should say this that that goes for every piece of shit PI who takes money from Scientology. And uh, I'm I'm saying this from experience. What I'm going through right now, which I'm not going to talk about because you know you don't let everybody know what's going down, but. Um, when you take jobs for Scientology, understand as a, as a private investigator, what you're doing is you are stalking, harassing um, victims of serious abuse. You're you're stalking victims of horrific crimes. These are people who were abused in Scientology. These are people who 
were molested in Scientology, raped in Scientology, physically, mentally abused, lost their families, and they have the courage to speak out, which is why they're on the radar of Scientology and why they're being fair game by Scientology. So I say this to current PIs and people who are being hired by Scientology. I don't know how you sleep at night doing what you do to people who are brave enough to speak out. Sorry, Steve. What what I would say, Leah, is I 100% agree with you on that, but I would like them to follow the lead of Rex Beaver. I, agree. I, I love Rex Ta- Beaver. I love take his name the church of Sci- <laughs> Take the Church of Scientology's money and act as double agents and spy on them and feed it back. Yeah, I agree. I agree 1,000%. Thank you for saying Perfect. Any parting words, Steve, that you'd like to say about fair game? <laughs> well, it's been great being on, and I just think it's terrific that you guys don't let go because, uh, as we've discussed, um, the Church of Scientology will not change its ways, and yes. David Miscavige continues to play that role, and no, there's no accountability and there's no justice. And, you know, like I discovered the most awful things when I was researching my book of um, – you know, human trafficking, forced abortions, Slave labor, the cover-up of abuse. child sexual yes. abuse, yes. The, the worst things imaginable. Yes. And yet Miscavige still sits in that room, um, you drinking know, and scotch. is allowed to get away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, drinking his scotch with his ridiculously priced starched shirts and mm-hmm. his preposterous, um, you know, uniforms and everything else, and he still gets to w- gets away with it. And, look, I just think it's terrific that you guys are uh, not letting it go. Thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your book. And thank you for continuing to talk to us because you know what? A lot of people go, hey, listen, I did that. I'm done. I don't want anything to do with it. I got fair gamed. I don't want to private eyes around my house. I don't want them trying to get my job. So we really appreciate when people are willing to uh, continue to expose Scientology for what they do. And um, we thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Steve. It's terrific to talk to you again. Yes. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Leah. It's been great.